Hello, welcome everybody to this uh, CBRL webinar this evening. My name is Carol Palmer and I am the director of CBRL in Amman. Um, for those of you who may not be familiar with CBRL, we are an independent UK research charity, a member, membership organization that exists to support, conduct and promote humanities and social science research in Levant or Levantine Middle East. Uh, we're committed to independent academic scholarship and knowledge exchange. We are one of the British International Research Institutes affiliated with the British Academy and we, from, from whom we receive a grant in aid to continue our operations. But we are always grateful um, to the support of our members um, in kind and whose donations also enable um, us to support and develop our activities and research projects too. Um, it's a great pleasure to welcome you all and our speakers to this evening's uh, lecture uh, based around the newly published book, Stealing from the Saracens, How Islamic Architecture Shaped Europe with Diana Dark, Venetia Porter and Scott Redford. And the book of course is by Diana, Diana Dark herself. Um, before I hand over to um, Venetia Porcher to introduce our speaker, our author and also colleague Scott Redford, I just want to give some brief um, house rules with regard to how we conduct these um, webinars. Um, during the sessions, uh, while people are speaking, um, it's quiet, but do, um, do put questions in Q&A that we will ask at the end. Venetia um, will speak first, followed by Diana uh, presenting part of her book, and then Scott. And then after some questions between our speakers, there'll be an opportunity for everybody to answer questions by typing your um, questions in the Q&A. Um, please um, keep your questions short if you can, um, because we'll be reading them out as well. So I'm going to introduce the first speaker, uh, Venetia Porter, who is a curator of Islamic and contemporary Middle East art at the British Museum, currently on furlough, she tells us, where she has been since 1989. Among her exhibitions are uh, Word into Art in 2006 and Hajj Journey into the Heart of Islam in 2012. Um, and she was lead curator for the Abulkari Foundation Gallery of the Islamic World, which opened in October 2018. She's a published author herself. Most recently, um, Taya Porter's Scrapbook, published last year by Unicorn Press and uh, Reflections, Contemporary Art of the Middle East and North Africa with Natasha Morris and Charles Tripp is published by British Museum Press uh, next month in November, or going to plan. So please, uh, Venetia, if you would like to take over and introduce proceedings, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Carol, so much. And uh, a huge thank you 
to CBRL for hosting us here today. Um, thank you uh, to both to Carol, to Maggie, and to Max Slaughter, who's, uh, who's our techie person here, who's going to keep all of this in, in control. Um, thank you all very much for your absolutely superb um, organization. Um, it's my great privilege uh, to be introducing our speakers and to be chairing this event today. And we are here, as you know, to talk about Diana Dark's recent book, Stealing from the Saracens, which, um, as you can see, uh, you can actually buy. So um, we're hoping we've got a big audience here today. So I'm hoping that um, Diana's going to sell lots of copies of this wonderful book. So don't hesitate to put your, your hover your hand over in the correct place. Um, but first, uh, let me introduce both Diana and Scott. So Diana has worked and lived in the Middle East and in Turkey for over 30 years. Um, in fact, she and I were at Oxford together in the same Arabic class. Um, she was actually, it has to be said, much better than all of the rest of us put together. She has an MA in Islamic art and archaeology at SOAS, but she has a deep love for Syria, which she knows exceptionally well. She has a house in Damascus that she's written about um, in the book, which is called My House in Damascus. And she spoke about this, I believe, to the CBRL in May. And she's also fairly recently published The Merchant of Syria um, about a cloth merchant, a, a story of survival um, as its subtitle. Scott Redford is the Nasser David Khalili Professor of Islamic Art and Archaeology at SOAS. He's a medievalist. He works on the art, archaeology and architecture of the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, he, in the period of the Crusades, that's his big thing. Uh, current writing projects include editing uh, edited volumes on the architecture and history of um, Rum Kala, Rum Kala, Kalata Rum, and the archaeology of Kinet Hoyuk, both sites in southeast Turkey. Now, the format of, uh, of today uh, is that we have about an hour and a quarter. Uh, Diana will encapsulate some of the key themes of her book framed around a series of, uh, of monuments. Um, and I have to say that uh, she's managed to reduce them to about eight slides or so um, from a long list of 90. So um, I think we'll have to do the 90 another, another time. Um, Scott will take some of these monuments and as he puts it, will complicate the story. At the end, as uh, Carol has mentioned, we'll welcome questions. So do please enter them into the chat and we'll take as many as we can. Um, I want to say at the outset, if you're not already aware, um, that the event will be recorded. But before we start on both the presentations, um, I wanted to start with a question um, each to Diana um, and to Scott. Now, um, Diana, at the end of your book, you say, Sometimes I wonder if my entire life could be viewed as an apprenticeship for this book. Can you tell us a little bit what you mean there? And have you been surprised by the runaway success of stealing from the, the, the Saracens? It's really quite something to sell out before the books are even in the shops. Yes, well, um, I suppose what I meant by that uh, remark about my whole life being an apprenticeship is that uh, as, as a child, I was very Eurocentric. I grew up believing that Europe was the center of the universe, you know, Kenneth Clark's civilization and all of that. My, my mother was German, my father was a German academic. We traveled in Europe widely um, when I was a child. And then at university, I made the decision to switch to Arabic 
And suddenly, whole new horizons opened for me. And so uh, gradually, I started to realize that Europe was not the center of the universe. And what's more, um, you know, as time has gone on over the decades, I've realized that more and more and more, the more, the more deeply I've got involved in countries like Syria, especially. I mean, we're talking the cradle of civilization, the birthplace of civilization, you know. Um, so, so that's actually what drew me to study Arabic in the first place, because I had this note, I realized that obviously everything began there between the Tigris and the Euphrates. So this had to be a very interesting area. So that's what I meant really that, that um, you know, and obviously I had the chance then to, uh, to buy and restore a house in Damascus, which led me very deeply into architecture. And I began to realize, my goodness, I'm actually an architect monkey. All this time, I never even realized. <laughs> and as a result of those sort of accumulated decades, I was actually able to, to, um, to um, write the book incredibly fast. It just kind of poured out of me. And uh, um, so, you know, Maybe that shows in some way in the book because it, it did it did kind of just flow out really and um, Hearst have done a beautiful job with the production um, I must say and they've when I first um, asked for um, all the illustrations I asked for you know about 150 I never dreamt they would say yes to them all but they have and you know for this book to be available at you know basically 20 pounds more or less is is astonishing I mean they've done a, a brilliant job so I think that's part of the reason why it's sold out and. The other reason is, of course, a very, very good um, review by The Guardian um, and their, their architecture critic actually rang, he read the book cover to cover and then he rang me and interviewed me for 90 minutes. So when he wrote that article, he was doing it off the basis of, you know, a pretty thorough, um, you know, deep dive into the book and things. So um, I think that that's really what did it, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Um, so now, um, Scott, you've spent decades in the Middle East, especially in Turkey. Now, when we were all um, young and studying Islamic architecture, art and architecture, um, we could go absolutely everywhere in the Middle East. Now, to you as a teacher and to your students, how big a difference do you think it makes that quite apart from the situation we're in with the dreaded uh, coronavirus, that these places are getting increasingly inaccessible. So what, what difference do you think that means, you know, in terms of your teaching? Well, Venetia, of course, it's a, it's a terrible loss. And this is one of the great things about having the CBRL, right? So there are uh, BREES, uh, British International Research Institutes, and a few other like these in, uh, from, uh, from other European North American countries. But, um, they're underfunded, they can't do what they used to do, and uh, I do archaeology as well as art history. There are fewer and fewer excavations uh, that are available. Some of this has to do with, uh, of course, the political situation in many of these countries. Part of it has to do with um, viewing foreigners in a, in a nationalistic sort of post-colonial light, foreigners that is Europeans and North Americans. Uh, part of it, though, you can't blame on the political situation or on COVID. Uh, as I wrote to you yesterday, part of this has to do with a trend that's it's over 20 years old, so it can't be really called a trend, a turn in art history that is uh, more theoretical and less concerned with actual works of, of art and architecture. Um, and um, I know my colleagues will get mad at me for saying the word actual, but uh, I will just quote my my colleague uh, Henry Maguire, uh, 
a great Byzantinist uh, who wrote almost 20 years ago, uh, what, uh, while our colleagues are busy deconstructing the monuments, the monuments themselves are deconstructing themselves. Uh, and to add to this, there is a trend, especially um, well in many Islamic countries, uh, to restore uh, historic monuments to within an inch of their life, if not uh, to kill them entirely by uh, facelifts and uh, other parts of the anatomy being, being lifted and completely done. So it's a terrible situation uh, where you are just basically you're seeing these wonderful monuments, these wonderful cities uh, either disappearing or just not being as important as they, um, as, they, as they used to be. And once again, a plug for the CBRL and for the other Beeries uh, and the lifeline that they throw, um, you know, doing a lot with very little money uh, to, to bring young scholars out there, to expose them to the monuments, the landscape, uh, to stay in Diana's house. No, I'm just kidding. Um, and, you know, to, to set up networks with scholars and local scholars, et cetera. So there are many things to say, but here, there, these are a few of them. Yeah, thank you. Well, I should just uh, just say that uh, we've already had a comment uh, from D Dino Politus to say he absolutely ag agrees with you about this, particularly about the state of the, the monument. So thank thank you very much, Scott. Um, so now, Diana, um, it's over to you to to give us, as I keep term terming them, your desert island discs of uh, of uh, of your 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 photographs. Thank you. Okay. Okay, so right, so um. Venetia has confined me to eight, so this is a, a very much a sort of cottage synopsis, really. So obviously, I'm only touching on a, on a few things because it's a it's a vast subject, obviously, and I'm I'm giving a big picture. I mean, the the, the book itself is a big picture, a huge, uh, a giant circular jigsaw is how I describe it at one point. So, um, uh, you know, forgive me if it's so precise, but of course, it's it's also um, it's meant to be giving a very quick overview. So this first slide is, um, is really the, the reason I wrote the book was when Notre Dame went up in flames and so much coverage, the world's attention on it and um, everybody was talking about it as the French national identity going up in flames. And there was not a word of acknowledgement about the backstory of this Gothic cathedral of all Gothic cathedrals. And um, that sort of riled a bit with me and I, it made me feel, you know, wait a minute, can't they, of course it's a, a catastrophe and of course it's a beautiful building and it does represent France in so many ways, but can't you acknowledge that a lot of these architectural features actually came from elsewhere? And so it was, a, it was that that actually made me want to write the book in the first place. Um, and the decapitated statue um, on the right-hand side is a statue of Denis, um, the patron saint of France. And this statue actually stand, is on the facade of Notre Dame. And the reason I put it there is that one of the things I explained quite early on 
is that um, the whole sort of philosophy of Gothic architecture <laughs> actually comes down to a, a medieval model about the identity of three different denizens. And um, just to cut a long story short, the, the, the main key is that the, the, the real identity is actually turns out to be a, a Syrian monk. But people didn't realize that at the time of, of Gothic. In the Middle Ages, people thought that this great philosophy of light and light equals God all came from somebody who was claiming um, to be a disciple of St. Paul and his name was Dennis. So we're now um, going to um, Syrian Dennis, if you like. Uh, this, is, this is where Syrian Dennis, a, a late fifth century monk would have lived here in, in Northern Syria. And by the way, when I say Syria, I don't mean the modern amputated state of Syria. I'm talking historic Syria, which of course stretched from the Taurus mountains right down um, to the Sinai. So essentially the whole of the, the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, and this I'm showing you because it's very, very important, of course, to acknowledge what Islamic architecture built on. A huge, a huge legacy of, of classical Roman, Byzantine, um, and Persian, Assyrian. I mean, so many influences there. And so early Christianity, um, the first thing that we can recognize that was called a church was actually in Dura Europos, a house church in the third century. Because of course it took many centuries before anything that we would recognize as a church was built. So, um, and here in, in Northern Syria, east of Aleppo, still covering the hillsides there in what is now rebel-held Idlib province, we have the remains of over 2,000 stone-built churches known collectively as the dead cities. And of course, these are impossible to visit now, but there in stone, and undeniably so, you have, you have the earliest, the, the transition from, from pagan architecture, from, from temple architecture, if you like, into the beginnings of Christian architecture. And you have um, on the left there, the, the church known as Kalblauze. There's only room in the slide to put one of its towers, but it was, it's a, a sort of early Romanesque. This dates to 460. So we're talking late fifth century. Um, the first time that the style of, of two twin towers and, um, and a monumental archway appears. Um, and this was actually, um, it was to receive pilgrims on their way to St. Simeon's Stylites the Basilica. Um, everybody wanted to go and visit um, uh, St. Simeon preached from his pillar. And in this picture, that's all that remains of his pillar. Um, and, well, that was before the war. Sadly, it's been um, blown to smithereens in the, in, by Russian airstrikes in 2016. So even what you're looking at there is now gone. So, um, but this was the Santiago de Compostela of its day. So incredibly influential and pilgrims from from all over Europe, from Britain, all went there. They went there and they brought back souvenirs and they brought back ideas. And Irish monks, we're told, were sent to Syria to learn about monastic architecture. So incredibly influential what, what the Muslims then, when they came to Syria, what they built on. And this now is um, the facade of the Umayyad Damascus Mosque, uh, the main picture there. And I'm showing you this to show how blended early Umayyad art was, the first Islamic art. You can see how it's, it's absorbed this idea of the, the, three, uh, the three arches um, 
into the, the, the mosaic facade. It's taken the, the Hellenistic columns and the capitals, and it's blended all of that. It's synthesized it into something new. And uh, in the little inset there on the left, that is the interior of the Dome of the Rock. And in that, in, in the bottom of the dome there, you can see the very first trefoil arches around, around the bottom of the dome there, which, which later get absorbed and um, move on in, into, into Gothic architecture in, in a, because Christians take them as a representation of, 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 the, um, of the Trinity. So staying with a, a Mayad art, now this is another example of, of where um, this is uh, the stone rose window, if you like. Some people postulate this as the first stone window. You can argue about it. You can say, oh no, that's a load of nonsense, but it is actually uh, a development um, from the early oculus that was uh, occurred in, in the churches of the cities of the dead. Um, and there, fragments of stained glass were actually found in St. Simeon's. And um, also here in, in, in this Amayad palace, which is it's near Jericho in what is today the occupied West Bank. And again, fragments of stained glass were found in these windows. They were decorative windows. And of course, there on the right, you've got Chartres uh, Cathedral where, you know, centuries, because these things take centuries and centuries to evolve to this kind of level. But, but um, you know, this is, it's, it's a very slow and, and um, uh, you know, complex process. Um, craftsmen take years and years and years to um, develop the styles until you get to the absolute epitome of it. Um, with, with something like, like Chartres, where again, it's, it's meant to be a decorative window, it's the sun. Um, so all these, all these elements um, can be traced right back to the, the beginnings of Christianity that um, Islamic architecture then takes over and, and develops further. And, and then of course, when the Umayyads come to an end, one prince, one Umayyad prince, Abdurrahman, manages to escape across North Africa, and he founds Syria, if you like, in Spain, Andalusia. And this, the building that epitomizes that is the Cordoba Mesquita in, in, in Cordoba, of course. And here is where now the, the, the skills, the, everything that the Omeyads have synthesized, you can see the trefoil arches again now being developed much more around the mihrab here on, on the right-hand side. Uh, and on the left-hand side, you have um, the first, one of the earliest examples of ribbed vaulting, where, um, Again, the, the, um, the geometry of this vault was examined only recently in 2017 by some Spanish architects who got permission to go in and do a, a structural survey of it. And they were astounded, they were flabbergasted. They hadn't seen anything quite so wonderful um, ever. It was the most perfect example of, of geometry and it hadn't needed repair in, in its entire thousand year existence. And, and in the arches below, again, on the left-hand side there, you can see how the trefoil arch is now starting to develop into sankfoil. So you've got five and then um, multifoil. And, and so every, everything starts to develop further and further. Now, one of the other gateways in, into which um, Islamic art started to find its way into Europe is, is through Amalfi, the trading links of Amalfi. Um, around about, which reached its peak around about the year 1000, and it was trading a lot with um, Cairo, uh, Egypt and Syria. Um, 
and Amalfi merchants noticed uh, the pointed arches of the Ibn Taloon Mosque in Cairo, which is the picture on the, on the right there. And they decided they liked that style and they, they imported it along with um, the craftsmen and the materials in some cases um, and built and incorporated it, the, the pointed arch, into their cathedral in Amalfi. And then a very powerful abbot, the Benedictine abbot, um, Desiderius, um, came to Amalfi to buy silks that, uh, that the Amalfi merchants had been trading. Um, uh, he, he needed, he needed a, a bribe for the future Holy Roman Emperor. And this was the only place where you could buy such things at that point. And so he, um, he saw the pointed arches and thought, oh, I like those. I'm, I'm going to do the same thing at, at my abbey at Monte Cassino. So he, he imports the, the laborers and the materials again. And then the abbot of Cluny, the most powerful Benedictine abbey, comes to Monte Cassino, sees those same arches and says, right, yes, I want those too. And of course, once Cluny has them, then it becomes the fashion, all the rage. And the, the, um, the abbot of Saint-Denis in Paris, and we're back to Dennis again, he comes and visits and discovers them. Uh, and, and that's where Gothic the style of the pointed arch really starts to take off. Venice, of course, another very obvious gateway after the fall of, of Amalfi. Um, so again, look at the arches everywhere, pointed arches, trefoil arches. Um, you've got the telephone dial motif there on the Palazzo Dario. Um, which is borrowed from a Mamluk uh, building in, in, in Cairo. You've got the Doge's Palace. Again, so many elements that have been directly traced. Um, in the book here, I rely heavily on the work of Deborah Howard, who was the Professor of Architectural History at Cambridge. She devoted 10 years of her life to studying all of this, so she'd done all the hard work. Really, I was just coming along and, and joining the dots. And then the final, the final picture here, uh, on the left, we have um, Burgos Cathedral, and uh, look at the tracery. Look at look at all the um, you know the, the 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 delicate effusive nature. I mean, this is what is a sort of you know Gothic represents this sort of combination of uh, God and nature, if you like, intertwined. And and uh, again, this this style, um, Christopher Wren, and this is I should have mentioned probably the book. Um, the reason for the title is all about the Saracens. Christopher Wren said 300 years ago that Gothic architecture should rightly be called Saracen architecture. So the book is investigating this, if you like. And, and so obviously on the, on the, and Christopher Wren actually specifies Burgos Cathedral as a building built in the Saracen manner. And on the right-hand side, we have Gothic that is still ongoing, Gothic now. This is the Sagrada Familia in, in Barcelona, which is due to be finished in 2026, the, the centenary of, of Gaudi's uh, death. Um, and again, Gaudi himself acknowledged his, his debt to Islamic architecture. Uh, he said he, um, he actually said, I am a geometrician, therefore I synthesize. And that's exactly all the things that Islamic architecture represents, this, this use of geometry. Um, the, and, and the effusiveness with which everything is 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 um, is covered. In fact, you know this this style one one could call it, if you like, Hispano-Saracenic Gothic, and and it is the ultimate fusion of nature, geometry, and religion. Okay, so I'll stop there. Thank you.
Thank you, Diana. That was uh, that was a, a wonderful snapshot, and I'm going to come back to you with a with a couple of questions, as will the the uh, the audience um, at at the end. Um, so, Scott, now over over to you. So you're here to, as I said earlier, to complicate the story. Well, uh, first of all, Venetia. Uh, um, first of all, Diana, thanks for a wonderful snapshot, as Venetia says, uh, and also, um, you know, thanks for introducing the book to people who don't know it as a, a book that covers a huge range of history and geography. So I also will be completely um, blinkered, shall I, shall I say, in my approach in the short period of time that I have to make just a couple of points. But Venetia did ask me to return to uh, the, the, the slide at hand to comment on the use of, of stealing uh, in, in the title. So that's why I start off with a text block, as we say <laughs> in, in art history, something you are never supposed to do in your first slide. The students will immediately tune out. But um, I thought immediately of this quote uh, from T.S. Eliot, the internet or the speed dial version of which you see at the top uh, and the actual quote um, below it. Uh, and it, raises this issue of uh, cultural appropriation to use a sort of neutral term um, and this idea of sort of different cultural traditions and the way they intersect. Um, and I'm very much a person who believes in borrowing and stealing and uh, in my students get very, I hope none of them are listening, students can get very frustrated when I'm teaching an Islamic art course and I start showing uh, Byzantine art as I will in just a minute, that sort of stuff, Armenian uh, architecture as I will as well. Uh, so I'd start with this uh, text block because I was asked to comment on the word stealing, which is uh, in this case, of course, uh, uh, a positive act uh, because there's something there that you want. You're, you're a magpie and you see something shiny uh, and you take it and you back, put it back in your nest. Uh, and T.S. Eliot, of course, says that maybe you'll make this thing, whatever it is, something better, but at the very least, uh, you will make it something different if you steal and if you do, not if you, you borrow. Okay, so that's my um, attempt at an answer to the question that I got from Venetia. Uh, Diana is our, mm -hmm. is our um, slide projectionist, so the next slide goes back uh, to a monument that is central uh, to Diana's book, or at least mentioned many times in, in Diana's book, and she has shown it uh, previously. Uh, so I want to, uh, as Venetia said, uh, complicate things. Uh, academics are always infamous for wanting to complicate uh, what seem to be very straightforward issues, uh, and just sort of try and shade the binary of Christian and Muslim uh, and uh, talk about this idea that Diana uh, mentions in her book as misunderstanding, or just now in her presentation, she called it a muddle. Uh, because of course, uh, nobody is making chronologies of buildings. Uh, nobody really necessarily knows the languages of the inscriptions on buildings and works of art. And so people, um, if you want, creatively appropriate uh, and uh, creatively misunderstand them. And the Dome of the Rock, of course, is a case in point. Um, Muslims are creatively misunderstanding it uh, within a century of its, uh, of its 
of its construction. Uh, and uh, it is, so it is not just the crusaders uh, who, who creatively misunderstand it as the temple known to our Lord. Diana in her book points out that there are very long Quranic quotations on the inside, how impossible it is to think of it as uh, having been, you know, a first century building. But, you know, the Muslims themselves uh, creatively misunderstand it because it's not a mosque. What is it? Uh, there are all sorts of aspects to it that don't, um, are, are then sort of adjusted in within Islamic cultures, including the reason for these beautiful uh, Iznik tiles on the exterior of the building, uh, which were added by Suleiman the Magnificent, the Ottoman Sultan, um, who, who thought of himself as the second Solomon, and he thought about this as Solomon's temple. And now for the Crusaders, Solomon's temple was the Al-Aqsa Mosque, but you know, the, these meanings have, uh, have jumped, jumped around. So this is an idea of um, you know, thinking about perhaps the way people are experiencing buildings uh, at the time, as opposed to the way we try to teach them and uh, we, we experience them in the 20th and the 21st uh, centuries. Uh, and Diana, again, may I get the next slide? I feel embarrassed asking her. Yeah. Another example of, of creative misunderstanding uh, comes, uh, of course, in 12th century Syria. This is Diana's uh, backyard. Uh, actually, this is the entrance to her house, just kidding. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the most famous uh, works of uh, medieval Syrian uh, Islamic architecture, uh, the hospital of uh, Nur ad-Din Zengi. Uh, but just look, uh, usually when you teach it, you talk about the gate, the wonderful doors with their geometry, uh, the introduction of Mukarnas. These are all important things uh, about this building, is not to, not to mention Islamic science. But just look at that little Roman edicule uh, that's sticking above the entranceway. What, what's that doing there? And of course, in the 12th century, there's something that uh, some scholars have called the classical revival. And there are scholars like Julian Raby who say, well, you know, that actually these Roman ruins are being incorporated into Islamic buildings because uh, there is a, an idea at this time that these actually are early buildings of the Umayyads. And uh, Diana very skillfully talks about the way the Umayyads uh, grow out, of course, of the late antique uh, heritage. So this is a, a creative misunderstanding. Uh, another example of a different uh, creative misunderstanding that also uh, helps us break down, um, you know, these ideas of borrowing and, uh, and, and repurposing, uh, shall we say. Let me move on before I say anything more. Um, yeah, uh, as, I, as promised, um, this is a setup slide to remind those of you uh, uh, like Dino Politis who have never been to Josias Lucas, just kidding Dino, uh, that uh, you know, the great um, late uh, 10th, early 11th century uh, monastic complex in Boeotia. And um, this is a general view of it. I'm going to be showing a, a close up of the, of the interior of the church that's on the left and then uh, a detail from the exterior of the church that's on the right. Next slide, please. So um, Byzantines, the great foes, of course, of the Muslims. Um, the Constantinople, of course, was attacked by the Umayyads uh, three times. Uh, and we are taught and we teach the art of the, of the Christian East differently from different courses, different scholars than Islamic art. Uh, this is something 
the, the issue of the relationship of Byzantine art and architecture to Islamic art is something that has puzzled scholars um, going back even before George Miles in the 1960s, uh, who uh, wrote uh, a numismatist who wrote the articles that said, that first specifically identified the use of Arabic writing or Arabic-like writing uh, extensively on Byzantine churches, not just any building, but on churches. And so he viewed this strictly as ornament because his ideas of what uh, Islamic writing uh, can be can do on Christian works of art uh, was was blinkered at that time, despite the fact that, of course, he's a great great scholar. And Diana mentions this 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 feature of oops, sorry, um, go back, please. Uh, I was waving my hands, but I wasn't waving them in that in that way. Um, the um, um, mentions this in reference to the use of pseudo-Kufic and Kufic writing or on the halos around uh, uh, Renaissance portraits, etc. So this is a larger phenomenon that spreads uh, to, to Italy. Those of you who know Arabic, though, if you look closely at the top line of the of row of bricks on the right-hand slide, you can see a very stylized um, Kufic representation of the word, word al-mulk, which is a a, an abbreviation of the term that Diana mentions a couple of times in her book, uh, al-muqlilah, sovereignty or dominion belongs to God, which is put by Muslims on important buildings, not just mosques, but on, on, on important buildings. So the Byzantines somehow have just have understood that this particular pattern, they don't have to know Arabic to read it as a pattern, they take it and they put it on an important building. And, and there are other ways to look at this apotropaically, et cetera. But this is another example of this, these creative misunderstandings and appropriations that, that fit actually in the general uh, universe that Diana is, is, uh, is, is talking about uh, that are a little bit closer to home and don't have anything to do really uh, with the rise of Gothic. So you'll notice the canopy and the mosaic on the left has this uh, pseudo kufic uh, on it. And uh, it's been recently again, uh, as Diana does, I borrow these ideas from a lot of scholars. Uh, recently, um, American art historian um, Alicia Walker has posited that the use of, of Kufic in Christian art as early as the early 11th century is a way to locate it in the Eastern Mediterranean, which is under Islamic dominion. And so it's shorthand for, for situating this particular scene uh, in the, um, you know, the presentation in the temple uh, in the East. Uh, yes, I, I uh, could say more, of course, but I won't. The next slide uh, is another way of complicating uh, things, and it has to do with some, uh, something that a lot of us do, um, uh, which is the identification of certain architectural features with ethnic and religious um, uh, uh, affiliations. So the pointed arch is Islamic, um, Mukarnas is Islamic. And this is something that, you know, I find myself saying uh, as well. And then you have to then explain to your students why in the 12th and 13th centuries, Armenians start building churches with Mukarnas on them uh, and not to mention uh, pointed arches. Uh, you can go to Islamic Spain, of course, and talk about the way that, um, that uh, the early Muslims then are, are, are appropriating uh, Visigothic or late Roman architecture in addition to the Syrian architecture 
that's mentioned uh, in Diana's book. Again, I don't want to, to over egg this particular custard, but uh, this is such a confusing issue to the Turkic, Turkish present day Turkish guardians of uh, the wonderful um, medieval capital of Ani, that um, the sign in front of this church, Church of the Holy Apostles, calls it a caravanserai. <laughs> uh, so much does the entranceway to this uh, narthex uh, look to the, the, the Turkish art historians, uh, rightfully so actually, as, uh, as a building that could be uh, Islamic. And I think I have one more slide. Um, yeah, which uh, is more uh, germane to really uh, the major concern as Diana wrote, uh, says in her introduction and writes in her book, which is the thing that inspired her to write this, uh, this book, um, uh, this very passionate book, uh, which is the, uh, the role of Gothic and, and the relationship of Gothic, something that's been puzzling people uh, for, for centuries. People have noticed the relationships, but but, um, but can't quite figure them out. And none of us uh, can quite entirely figure them out um, ourselves. But uh, I want again uh, to talk about something that draws on other people's work. In this case, uh, an author who is quoted uh, in uh, Diana's bibliography, Robert Osterhout, who's a Byzantine uh, art historian. Uh, and he uh, has written about uh, the Gothic architecture of the Crusader East uh, pointing out that even though it looks Gothic, it looks extremely Gothic, uh, and therefore it is Gothic, it's not built in a way that you would build uh, a ribbed uh, groin vault, uh, because if you were a French architect, you build it with the rib integral to the fabric of the, of, of the vault. And if you look at the, um, at the bad slide, excuse, apologies for the slide on the, on the right, uh, there uh, was ribbed vaulting that fell off. Uh, and Osterhout and other people have argued that actually there may have been a French mason who was uh, in charge of the work, but the people who are actually doing a lot of the construction of what we think of as Romanesque and Gothic architecture in today's Syria, Israel, uh, West Bank, uh, Lebanon, uh, Jordan, etc. Are, are actually probably local Christians who after all uh, have in inherited the architectural vocabulary of the late Roman world. Uh, and they're just put, you know, putting, um, uh, putting the ribs on uh, afterwards, gluing them on, if you will, so that they look the way that the patrons want them to. So I think I've carried on uh, too long, but I will, uh, I will stop right there. Uh, with just this the one last slide that directly um, uh, addresses this very interesting and very complicated issue that is a, at the heart of Diana's book. Well, thank you. That was um, that was really fascinating from uh, from both of you. Um, I'm just going to go just to ask you each a couple of questions before turning uh, over to the audience. We have some questions coming in, which is which is great. Um, Diana, I wanted to take you back to 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 Ren. Um, I really loved your first chapter, that whole connection to Wadham, your own college, actually. Um, 
to Wren, who was there in the 1640s, this whole sort of extraordinary time, the interest in Arabic, Pocock, the great Laudian professor of Arabic, he'd been to Aleppo, the manuscripts that he collected. This is the time when coffee houses first start um, appearing. Um, and um, Wren had a very clear knowledge of this context. And I wondered if you could just expand on it um, for us just, just now. Yes, yes. I mean, I wasn't expecting to find that, actually. I mean, as, as you say, I mean, Wren, you know, was, was, was at Wadham. And so I was familiar with with Wren, obviously. Um, and so when when I first um, discovered his remark, which was actually, I mean, th this remark of his that, that Gothic, what we call the Gothic style should rightly be called um, the Saracen style was something he wrote right at the end of his life. So, you know, and he lived to be nearly 90. Uh, astonishing man, astonishing, because he, he was, he was, um, he was told, well, according to his son, he was, uh, he wasn't expected to live until adulthood you know he was a sickly child but um an incredible man and 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 the ultimate synthesizer as I think I call him in the first chapter the arch synthesizer I mean if ever there was a man who 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 was broad-minded and just looked for knowledge wherever he could find it and was constantly curious and 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 just instinctively synthesized the best from whatever he found basically and managed to combine it then in something new. And he was very open-minded to wherever that knowledge came from. And the politics of the time he lived in was very turbulent, you know, I mean, it was sort of royalist, anti-royalist and all this stuff. And he managed to steer a course, um, you know, an apolitical course um, and just focus on the knowledge, the science and, and people from whatever political spectrum came together in this remarkable Royal Society, you know, the, the origins of the Royal Society. Um, you know, went back to Wren and, and, and to Wadham. And I loved the fact, actually, that the very first thing that he built was this um, uh, transparent beehive in the garden of, of Wadham, um, so that you could watch the bees um, doing all their colonies and exactly what they were up to. <laughs> uh, and it was the most remarkable thing that, 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 that he made. And, and he made one for the warden of Wadham and then made one for other people who would then correspond with each other about the, 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 the colony of bees. I mean, he, he was just, he'd turn his mind to anything, sundials, you know, anything. He was just constantly curious and looking for knowledge everywhere. So the fact that he, he, he you know, he embraced all this knowledge that came from the East because he coincided with the time when, when um, Arabic, the study of Arabic in Oxford was just beginning with which Archbishop Lord and everything just just beginning and that was just perfect timing for Ren. He, 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 he lapped it all up. Yeah, wonderful. Thank, thank you. And uh, Scott, I had a very quick question for, for you, which is, um, which is actually about the teaching of this, this subject. Um, so um, these ideas of transference or stealing or whatever we want to to talk about them. I mean, you obviously talk about this a lot in your in your courses. I mean, do you think in the study of European uh, architecture, you know, in these kind of grand places and universities, you know, are, are they talking? Are, are they teaching students about some of these ideas um, that uh, that Diana has has been focusing on in 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 her book? Well, you'll notice that um, I didn't directly take on uh, the main focus on Gothic because it's such a complicated uh, issue. Uh, just, I just uh, showed one slide about it. Um, 
I, my exposure to the teaching of Gothic architecture in this country is extremely limited. Um, what I do know about it, and I hope that I will be corrected, uh, is that it tends to be, um, it tends not to use some of the ideas that Diana puts forward. Um, uh, but, but once again, when I say when I say this, I say it based on my own education, which of course is whose sell by date, of course, is uh, ha has long gone by. So are there young scholars of the Gothic who are more open uh, to these issues? It's not as if they haven't been discussed, um, but it's a, whether they front them more as Diana does in her book, I, I just don't know. So I don't want to, to yeah. speak that way. No, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. Um, now, I've got a question. Um, I'm going to take some of the questions. Uh, so um, John Chapman is, uh, so I'm just going to read. Um, I read somewhere of the discovery of Arabic architectural markings cut in the floor of a chamber in the walls of Durham Cathedral, suggesting the, present, uh, the presence of a Saracen in inverted commas, architect or mason. Can anyone confirm this? I don't know wow. which of you wants to address this one. Wow, well, that's amazing. I don't know that. I, I want to shoot up to Durham immediately and go and see it in that case, because <laughs> that, that is it. I mean, what I am discovering more and more, actually, is, and it's interesting how this stuff is only just beginning to come out, is how many Muslim Masons uh, did come over, you know, uh, with, uh, you know with returning crusaders in, 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 in one way or another. And it's something that has been quite sort of overlooked, I think. And, and you know, I, I, I live in hope that, that things like, if, if this really has been discovered in, in Durham, if, if uh, you know, I hope that, that with, with new technology, you know, that we, we can date things exactly, um, you know, we, we can discover so, so many of these things. It would be wonderful to think yeah. Well, there, there has been some, some work done on the pavement in, um, isn't it called the Cosmati Pavement in, West, in Westminster Abbey, um, mm. which has a lot of very early Islamic glass in it. Yes. So maybe, maybe this is round about the same, the same period. It's so interesting. Um, so yeah. now um, uh, from Jamie um, Odabakian, uh, it's a question for either of you, actually. Is there any evidence of carpet design elements um, entering into architectural trends in Europe. Um, can any of these still be seen in any European buildings today? And if so, where? That, does that jump out at anybody? Um, the, only, the only thing I can think of to say on that, because I haven't seen anything where I've obviously thought, aha, that's, um, you know, that is, I recognize that from a carpet design. I, I certainly haven't seen that specifically. Um, the only thing, to do with carpet design that, that does um, strike me is, is these zigzags, um, these very sharp zigzags, which you get in some, in some uh, early carpets and which um, you see then very strikingly. I mean, those same sharp zigzags, um, you get them in Umayyad art. Um, so the, the, the facade of Moshatta, which is in the you know, Berlin um, Museum of Islamic Art, has got those very sharp pointed um, in fact, I nearly, I would have put one in in my pictures if I'd uh, had more, but um, because it's a very striking image, because then it's so reminiscent of the way uh, that very, those very sharp um, 
angular arches on the southern side, the southern facade of Notre Dame, and, and you, again in, in, in some other cathedrals, um, that, that, that very, and, and that I was told in Damascus um, when I was restoring my house, because actually my, my house there around the courtyard has got a zigzag pattern um, just above the, um, the first floor going around. And I was told that that is a very early Mesopotamian design, sort of slightly reminiscent of the ziggurat of Ur, I presume. So it's almost one of the very earliest architectural patterns, this zigzag. Gosh, how fascinating. Um, so now I, I have a comment and a question from uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Venetia, I'm, I'm sorry to cut in like this, but may I just, before we get too far away, uh, I'd like to add something to the first question, uh, which is that uh, it's, and this doesn't really have anything to do with the second question, but it just because it's on the floor, uh, based on what you were talking about, Cosmatesk uh, um, floor uh, coverings, um, in our excavations at Kinet, but also uh, Israeli excavations in Acre, uh, we have found that the Crusaders are making glazed tiles, or that inlands that are under Crusader control. We always think of tiles and tile revetments as something that's Islamic. Uh, again, one of the things that seems to be something nice, and so they start making it themselves and using it themselves and, and exporting it. So it's very interesting to see that that tiles on cathedral floors start in France in the, in the mid to late 12th century and then spread, of course, to Westminster. And you know the tiles that are in the British Museum, so you do know them well, uh, also in the VNA, the Chertsey Abbey tiles, are really striking uh, in the way that they incorporate motifs that can be seen uh, in Islamic and Eastern Christian art. So I just wanted to, to, to throw that into the into the mix because this is a very important part of Gothic architecture that I think, but again, out of ignorance, maybe I think this is, needs more um, research in, in, the, in the Eastern European connection. Thanks for allowing me to butt in like No, this. no, I'm sorry, I should have asked you. Um, so may, maybe Diana, that's for another chapter when you do the, <laughs> that's right. you know, the 15th reprint of this, of this book. Um, now I'm it's going to... Bigger bigger. <laughs> Um, now I want to, I have a comment, very nice comment and a question. So from Zaydan uh, Kafafi, uh, he says he wants to convey um, His Royal Highness Pr Prince Al Hassan's uh, greetings to the participants of this, of this meeting. So please, we send our greetings back. That's lovely. Um, and then the question is, uh, I think it, this is um, addressed uh, to you, Scott, um, uh, again from Zaydan. I believe that the Dome of the Rock was built by Abdul Malik due to political reasons and not for religious reasons. What do you think about that? Um, yes, the uh, Diana's book will get uh, even more immense when we start entering into that. There are uh, just acres, uh, not acres, but but gallons of of ink that have been spilled, of course, on the real reason uh, reasons, I guess, for the building of the Dome of the Rock, and we just don't have the time to get in there. And it's very hard, of course, to separate um, even Muslim from non-Muslim uh, ideas uh, in the early uh, Islamic period, uh, but also uh, to separate politics and, and religion. So I'll just put it, there are many, many different theories um, and we just have to leave it at that. They're all fascinating. 
I, I'll tell you what I was taught when I was doing my MA at SOAS on, on this. What, what, what we were taught was that the Dome of the Rock was the first political Umayyad statement by Abdul Malik to say that here we have arrived. We are, because, because again, uh, there's, there's quite a lot has been written about how when, when um, Muslim armies first came, into Jerusalem and, uh, and, and into Syria, um, Christians actually didn't realize they were a completely different religion. Um, they just thought they were another sect of Christianity. <laughs> um, and so this, it was what, sort of 50 years after, after they had actually taken uh, the city. I think that, 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 the, um, uh, that the Dome of the Rock was built. And, and, and the interesting thing about it is how, how synthesized it is with, um, uh, you know, in, in that people look at, you know, a Eurocentric hist historian would look at it and say it, it's it's a Christian building. It's a Byzantine building. It's not an Islamic building. But again, you know, the, 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 this is, as you rightly say, you can argue about that and to and fro about <laughs> so many things there. Until the cows come home. Until the cows come home. And also, and as you rightly pointed out, the way it looks now is not how it looked when it was built. And, you know, all, all of those complications. Uh, just just a, a footnote to what you just said, which I agree with. A, a lot of the writing that I have read most recently has been about apocalyptic and eschatological theories about the building of it, the throne of God that will descend from the heavens at the end of time, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it's way beyond my area of competence to judge this, but there are lots of writings um, in respect to that. I don't see why there can't be really multiple meanings uh, for it um, and not just one. So I have a question from uh, Khaled Khan. Um, she says she's currently reading Diana's book and she spends a chapter explaining the pre-Islamic influences on Islamic architecture. Muslims do not deny the pre-Islamic influences which they built upon, but in the West, the Islamic contributions to the world have been covered up, whether deliberately or inadvertently, I don't know. That's the issue for me, she says. Not anymore. <laughs> hang on, hang on, I haven't finished. <laughs> uh, that's the issue for me, and denies the Muslim world its heritage and identity. Growing up in the West, you would never know this story. So I think this is very important. And so, Diana, I think this is for you because I think it also touches um, on something that you talk about actually in the last chapter um, of your of your book, where you you actually are seeing your book as you describe it as a kind of corrective. Can Absolutely. Can... Yes. No. It, I think it is a I, I think it is a very under acknowledged debt, basically, to to Islamic art. And yes, I mean, Islamic art did build on what was there before, just like everything builds on. Everything builds on everything else. That is, that is how everything works. Um, but yes, I mean, I, I, I agree. I, I completely agree. And, and that is why I felt, you know, I wanted to set the record straight, basically. That, that, um, and, and maybe in a few places, in my zeal to, to, to explain my argument, I, I, I even, you know, by my own uh, statements actually say that there will be howls of protest um, at some of the comparisons that I draw, and indeed there have been howls of protest, um, you know, quite quite vocal ones, um, because people don't like to think there are still so many people who will not accept that Greece and Rome were not the origin of everything. I mean, the point is, people need to acknowledge that 
even if you talk about Greece and Rome, you know, the, the Greek and Roman empires were multicultural. Um, you know, the, the Byzantines in Syria and the early Christians were a mix of ethnicities. They were multicultural, multi-ethnic. Um, you know, so to imagine these people were all Greeks, oh, they're Byzantines, therefore they're Greeks, that's simply not true. And, and more and more research is coming out now that, that is starting to prove this, because basically the eastern provinces of Rome were very under-researched in comparison to the amount of attention that's been given to the western um, things. And, and just as one other little example, actually, of, of this, which, um, you know, I think is possibly worth mentioning. A new book has just come out on, on Ravenna. And I bought it in great excitement because I went to Ravenna in, in July and you know loved it and could see so many Syrian influences. And I talk about Ravenna quite a lot in the book. And um, there's a huge Syrian backstory. So I thought, oh good, you know, this new book will will be talking about some of this. And um, I looked at the book and I, <laughs> I I looked in the index and I, you know, and there's just a few passing references to, to Syria because, because people just don't look further back. You know, they start in around, you know, the, the year 400 and go forward. They don't look the backstory, you know, and there's a huge Syrian backstory there that is simply not acknowledged. Goodness. Um, well, that's, that's so interesting. It, it, it continues then. So, so what you are doing is very much a, um, a much needed uh, corrective. Now I have a, um, a question from uh, Dino P Politis. Um, sorry, Dino, you've got lots of questions, but I'm just going to choose one of them if you don't mind. Um, it's going back to the term the Saracen. How do you define Saracens? Arabs, Muslims, or Oriental Christians? So this is Dino speaking. It seems to me that the label is being used to describe Eastern Christian Byzantine art and architecture. Um, so he uses the example Qalb uh, al in uh, in the dead cities um, of Syria. Um, so so yes, let's just leave it at that. So this definition of this kind of blanket term um, Saracen, um, do you think this is this is being sort of misused as as well? Yes, well, obviously, the, the reason that I went for it in the title was because of Christopher Wren, because he said the goth, what we call the Gothic style should be called the Saracen style. And of course, when he said Saracens, that was the language of the 17th century. That, that at that time, that is how everybody referred to Arab Muslims generally. So it didn't, it never, never included Christians. It was always Arab Muslims. And um, looking at the um, uh, the origins of the word, that's the other reason for the title, it's probably a good time to just explain that, um, that the origin, uh, the, uh, the root, sarakin, comes from stealing, saraka in, in Arabic, and so stealing from the Saracens, and, and, the, and the root, so in other words, sarakin means thieves, looters, and so we are taking things from people we called thieves. But the word itself, Saracens, actually is, is not a, you know, it goes way back. It goes, goes back into, um, uh, you know, the second century AD, um, way pre, you know, pre-Islamic by a long, long way. And it's a, it's, it's a, a, a nomadic tribe um, uh, in Arabia. But over time, it comes to loosely be used in, in the West, if we're going to use that language, to refer to Arabs generally. And, and so with the Crusades, it, it just gradually gets absorbed into, into this meaning of all Arab Muslims. So, so Kalblausi would never be described as Saracen architecture because that's Christian, obviously, that's nothing to do with Saracens. So, so that's, whoever calls that Saracen architecture, is, 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 that's a mistake. 
Um, it maybe I misinterpreted that when I when I was sort of paraphrasing that, but um, but it, this the, there's a kind of follow up in a, in a sense. This is from Manaf Bilal. Um, it's again that that uh, idea of Arabic. She says she I feel I feel that the overuse of the term Arabic might be misleading in these contexts. That it's more about um, what she's saying. Put very simply, for millennia the Levant has been this melting pot in which old world culture can con converged. Um, so everyone near uh, contributed to and scooped up from the geographic and perhaps cultural uh, agora of the region it's a rather nice way of put, putting mm. that I, mm. I, th I think I think mm. um, so I'm just going to I've got I've got a few more minutes um, uh, let's see Ahmed uh, Lash thank you for this Oh, I've lost you, wait a minute, there it is. Thank you for this um, nice presentation. Just to confirm that the Al-Mushatta decoration and building technique came from Eastern Syria and Mesopotamia. Is that, is that a question or a comment? I think, I'm not sure which. I don't know, Diana, anything here? Scott? Yeah. Uh, uh, perhaps he's mentioning Mushatta because it has the large zigzags on the facade. The zigzags, exactly, it has the very striking zigzags, yes. yes. It could be. Um, I've spent much too much of my professional life writing uh, very learned articles that no one reads about zigzags. So oh, come on, tell us. Talk about we want, Scott, we want to know about your zigzags, go no, on. No, 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 I really, uh, I, I say this in jest, but it really is, we only have a few more minutes. So, um, you know, uh, I, 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 I don't want to zig or zag. <laughs> Well, um, I think in that in that in that case, I'm going to um, ask Diana a last question, uh, which is uh, it's to go back sort of to the question I asked you at the at the beginning, which is that all of your life had been leading up to this. So, what is what is next? I can't believe that you don't have um, an, another book go, go, going on, either in your head or already on the computer. No, no, I, I, I can assure you that although I am indeed commissioned to write, in fact, a, a history of Damascus, but, but wow. um, that's, that's um, you know, that's something that just keeps getting put on the back burner because I just get, um, you know, I, I get, usually my reason for writing a book is because I get, you know, worked up or angry about something that I feel needs correcting. And, yes. and this one is still, is still very much... Um, in the forefront. I mean, my current obsession is stained glass because there wasn't a chance to mention, actually, this is another wonderful discovery that um, the raw materials from, from um, of all the glass in our early, early Gothic cathedrals is, uh, has all been shipped over from Syria. I mean, astonishing. And, mm -hmm. and Venetian recipes specify that they want the cinders of Syria, as they call it, because they know that that is the best mm -hmm. because it's using this organic plant ash which gives that early glass this wonderful sort of spiritual um, effect because it's full of imperfections. And so this is why when the light shines through it, it gives this wonderful mysterious spiritual glow, which when you then restore it and put in a, a modern bit of glass, that's all lost, finished. You know? And, and um, it, it's, it's tragic that actually these days, very little of that original Syrian glass uh, is, is left. I mean, I was able in July to do a tour of quite a lot of uh, Gothic cathedrals in, in France. And I was sort of saying, well, wait a minute, where is it? And the more I looked and asked, they said, oh yes, actually, you know, it was lost in a fire or, or it got smashed or, or it got restored to, to a degree where frankly, you know, it was destroyed by the restoration. 
Um, mm -hmm. So the bits that, re, um, that remain are actually in museums. So the V&A here has one of the best collections. And I would really recommend people to go and look at the V&A's stained glass collection. Um, and, and, and you'll see that um, Syrian stained glass, I can tell you because it's all been analyzed now properly scientifically, is in Canterbury Cathedral, in York uh, Minster, in Chartres and in Saint-Denis and in Rouen. And I think as people do more and more research on this, they will find it more and more in those early magnificent stained glass windows with that beautiful blue. Well, gosh, how, how wonderful. There's obviously so many, so many revelations to, to, to come. So you really have better do a part, a part two here. Um, but Diana, I want to thank you so, so much, um, for, you know, for letting us talk about your, your book to Scott, um, so much for your contributions to, and this complicated, I'm sorry, complications um, that you introduced. I'm sorry we didn't get to hear about the zigzags. Uh, that's that's a medical that's term, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> but Diana, what I, what I, <laughs> but before handing over to Carol, what I want to say, Diana, is that it's something that, that Scott said, actually, um, which is that your book is full of passion. And, and what's incredible is what fun, clearly, you had um, in, yeah. in putting this book together. And, I, had and ball. That, I had a ball, yes. You had a ball. And the, and the chapter where, where you have all those photographs and you have the labels on the, the photographs, you know, of all the different styles of the arches and all of all that kind of thing and really um absolutely salute you for this this magnificent um book um and thank you to cbrl thank you to all those who asked the the the, the questions and i'm sorry i didn't get to 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 all of them um and it's uh, it's been i've really really in enjoyed um talking to you to you both so thank you very much uh, CBRL. thank you thank you venetia for being a great moderator thank yes. you Yes, thank you, Venetia, and thank you, CBRL, as well. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. I mean, I'm just going to echo the thanks uh, to all of you, um, to Diana, to Scott, and to Venetia for, for chairing so wonderfully, and to everybody who has attended today and asked questions. Um, it's been a very lively discussion. I've certainly learnt a lot myself, and a reminder that you can buy the book. Uh, all those who've attended can uh, get a 25% discount by following the link. And to encourage you to join us for more CBRL webinars in future, sign up for our, our mailing list, um, go visit our website, uh, cbrl.ac.uk. I'd like to thank our speakers also for all the kind things that they've said about CBRL and our fellow British International uh, research institutes today too. So um, you can see that people are leaving and so thank you very much and uh, until the next time, um, bye from Amman. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. bye. <laughs>